0: Well, friends, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scripture this morning. And please turn with me to the Old Testament prophet, Haggai. Haggai. Now, I've I've, uh, probably caused your head to explode a little bit through this series here and pronouncing the prophet's name differently than perhaps you're used to. And now that we're just about done with it, Gonna pull back the curtain and tell you something else. It's actually not hug eye. It's hug-eye. eye. All right, but nobody is gonna pick up on that one, and I won't worry about it. All right. Well, hey, before we get started, I I just want to let you know that uh, after this is done, I need to talk to you about something. And suddenly, you're transformed back to second grade. And Mrs. Makarovskis, with her hands on her hip, is looking down at you. You know that feeling? You want to talk to me about what? What do I do? I mean, it's that, that, that same feeling you had when Mike Wiseman put that paper clip in the the, the electrical outlet, and then he dared uh, Todd Hansen, Todd, the I never back down on a dare Hansen, to go ahead and touch it. Yeah, Mrs. Makarovskis, a little disappointed. It can be hard. Somebody walks up to you. What do you want to talk to me about? What did you discover? <laughs> it can it can feel that way. And, and and the reason I talk about that is, is Haggai. We've, we've basically gone through the book of Haggai here. And right here at the end of chapter 2, again, of a little tiny postcard kind of prophecy, you know, it's taken us on a roller coaster. I mean, it, it started out with These people over here, what do you mean these people? God, you're talking about your people. What happened to my people? And so when God starts saying these people say, you know that God isn't happy, they say it's not time to rebuild the temple. I mean, they were in exile in Babylon 70 years away from their home and away from everything that was normal and comfortable and right. The temple had been destroyed. But just as God had said that he would take them in, he also said he would bring them back. And he did. There they were back in the land, and they were building themselves those paneled houses. Remember? Whenever you think about Haggai, always think about those paneled houses. They were building their own lives back, and they had neglected to rebuild the temple Number of uh, prophets uh, involved with that. Zechariah was another uh, prophet uh, prophesying during this time. And, uh, you know, uh, Nehemiah building those walls. Ezra, the priest, working on building back that temple. So, a lot of stuff happened around the temple here. And then they, they got to work on it, they heard the word of God. And they responded to it, which is the pattern that each one of us has to have in our life if we are going to know the blessing of God. And, uh, and, and then we get to the next uh, message. It's a series of messages in this prophecy. And it's OK, well, you got to work, but let's talk about something here. How are you prospering, working on your own, kill your kingdom, building it up and making yourself comfortable? You were poor. You'd go to get some wine, and there was nothing left, and the grain, and it was empty. And it seemed that nothing was, was really successful in your life. But now that they had obeyed God and got back to work, God said, I'm going to bless you. And so there is some, some confrontation. God saying to His people, hey, we need to talk. And when they hear God's Word and respond in obedience... God brings blessing and encouragement. And just as we get to the end of that little pattern of sin and blessing and sin and encouragement, we find these last four verses almost as if they were just tacked on the end. It's as if we could almost begin them with these words. Oh, by the way, and it kind of feels that way until you really begin to explore it. And so we're going to look at uh, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 20. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. Starts out with that, hey, I want to talk to you. And based on the, uh, the little pattern of uh, i got a problem with you, to, I'm going to encourage you, i got a problem with you, I'm going to encourage you, and uh, he's a rubble. And so here we are in verse 20. And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the very same day that the previous one did, on the 24th day of the month. So the the previous prophecy here in uh, our message in chapter 2, the very same day, after that one had been given, after people had time to soak it in, God said one more thing. And so the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And again, it, it kind of feels like a postscript. You've written out that email, and then you've got one more thing, and you don't want to go back and erase everything and try and fit it in grammatically, so you just do the P.S. Postscript, by the way, but it was a very personal message. So let's, let's not mistake it for a postscript. This was saved to the last because it was a very, very personal message. And it was the kind of personal message that you want everyone to hear. And that, that sounds maybe a little odd, but we do that sometimes. We like to uh, praise our kids in front of other people, you know, it, it, It's uh, so they know it's not just something you're saying, but you mean it, and you want to celebrate a good decision on their their behalf, good actions, uh, successful work, uh, whatever it might be. And this is what God is doing here. He says, I got this something to say to you. I don't want everyone else to listen in, including you and I here on this very snowy morning, a message from God to us through the prophet Haggai listening in on what he has to say to this particular person. So the timing of the message, just kind of a, oh, by the way, I don't want you to miss this, but look at the recipient of the message. Who is getting this message? You know, every one of these messages is to the leadership and to all the people. It was all inclusive. But this one's a little different. Again, it's very personal. And the recipient of the message, we learn here in verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel. Go ahead and say that three times. Uh-huh. Zerubbabel. <laughs> He's the governor of Judah. And we've read his name in all of these uh, prescripts of uh, whatever the message might be, you know, say rovable, and the and the priest, and uh, all of these people. Now God focuses in on him, and the first thing we notice about his name is, well, beyond the fact that it's fun to say, is is that his name, like so many names in the Old Testament, it has meaning. And there are some unfortunate names, you know, that we, uh, we've we seen them on the internet or we've made them up along the way. And there was a guy running from uh, for student council at uh, Moody Bible Institute. His name was Pete Finger. That's an unfortunate name. You know, I'm sure he had a great heritage and everything, but unusual names tend to make people uncomfortable, you know, and uh, and people are cruel and they, you know, they do horrible things, so... But when you look at this guy's name, you say, that this is a bit of an unfortunate name. Not because it's Zerubbabel, you know? It sounds like you you gave up halfway through and mumbled your way through the rest. Zerubbabel, whatever. His name means seed of Babylon. You got the bubble at the end there. It sounds like Babylon. Zara is the Hebrew word for seed. And what it simply means is he was born in captivity. He was born in this land, not his homeland. It seems that perhaps a a thoughtless action on his parents, you know, well, we're in Babylon. Let's name him born in Babylon here. And he just kind of got labeled, oh, I'm back in the land, but the memories of my name continue to remind me and I want you to notice that he is also the governor. So he is. Uh, his name means "seed of Babylon." We we also should know something about his family. You know who are these people? Name him anyway. Well, first and foremost, here we should know that Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David. You know what that means, right? I mean, remember uh, remember in Second Samuel. David wanted to build a house for God. He says, I live in this beautiful palace. God should have something nice, which, by the way, was the exact opposite of the attitude of these people coming back from exile. Like, I want to build me. And uh, you remember Nathan the prophet said, David, do whatever is in your heart. It's a good thing. It's a worthy goal, to be sure. Before Nathan got out of the parking lot, he came back and said, "No, wait a minute. God says this. It's nice you want to build me a house, but you're not going to be the one to do it. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, but not one of brick and mortar and nice shingles on the top. He was talking about a dynasty, that the right to rule over the people of Israel would come through the line of David. Zerubbabel, living in the rubble. I didn't mean that, okay? You know, what? I just... And he's a governor over a bunch of broken people. When he looks back at his ancestry, and have you ever spent any time on that website? I know some of us have, but it's, uh, it's fascinating going back and seeing where your grandparents signed the document coming into America, you know, getting off the ships. and i It's, it's fascinating. But this man, when he looked at his ancestry, he had some good stuff back there. You know, King David, wow. And like you and like me, David had some down spots there. But David was a man after God's own heart. David is the one that taught us how to repent from our sin. The sacrifice wasn't it, but the humble spirit, a broken heart. These are the sacrifices of God. And here he was, the ragtag leader of a Bunch of broken people. And so we find out uh, not only was he the descendant of King David, he's in the genealogy of Matthew chapter one, which means he was in the line of Christ. Even in this place, out in the boonies, the the busted up part of town, God's line went through it. <sighs> So he has some good stuff going for him. Again, difficult name, but good stuff going for him. But when you look back in your genealogy, you see some bright spots and, and some dim bulbs. And you don't have to go back far in this guy's genealogy to discover that his, great, that his grandfather's name was Jehoiakin. Now, because you're all good students of the Bible, you remember the whole process of, of uh, first the northern kingdom of Israel being uh, besieged in uh, Samaria, the, the capital city being, and then they just took them all away captive to Assyria. Then they went to the southern kingdom, the Babylonians, God raised them up, and they besieged uh, Jerusalem, and they, they just destroyed the walls and the temple, and they took people captive, and, the, and one of the ways they did it, they had some lousy kings at the end. Jehoiakim, he was not such a great one. You know, his, his, he had a son named Jehoiakim. And, uh, and they, they did evil in the, the sight of the Lord. In 2 Kings 24 and verse 8, it says this. This is this kind of spelling out the end here. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushita, and the daughter of Elthana of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. Very difficult uh, legacy, because what was said of Jehoiakim was a most unusual thing. When God looked at this man's life, this is what he had to say. In Jeremiah 22, remember, Jeremiah is the prophet. He's watching the people of God go into captivity. And here he has a, a little blurb to say about Jehoiakim In Jeremiah 22 and 24, He says, God says, as I live, declares the Lord, though Caniah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear him off. He was a wicked man. And he didn't have to go back too far as Zerubbabel to see that there was some messed up stuff in his family line. I suppose that's true of all of us. Because all of us come into this world sinners. Some of us get really good at it. And yet, every once in a while, there's just one person in the line that says, Enough. The sin has to stop. And Zerubbabel was that man trying to serve the Lord, fearing God, obeying Him, and leading this ragtag bunch of people. And so his family, his name, his his legacy, this is the man that God wanted to talk about. We don't know much more about uh, Zerubbabel, but one thing we know is he wasn't a lot different than you and I. Had some high points and some low points. Maybe considering what kind of man he really is, God needed to talk to him. What about this line of David anyway? Am I it? And is this as good as it gets? God wants to have a word with him. And so notice also his title. Again, he's the governor. A disappointment. Who wants to be governor when you were born to be king? That's a good question. When God saved us, he saved us to rule. One day we will rule with him be a good idea if we start living like it now. And by that, I don't mean telling everybody what they ought to do. But the best way to rule is to serve. You want to have an impact in someone's life, look out for their best interests. That's what it looks like to lead in God's uh, kingdom. And so we've seen the, uh, the timing of this message kind of added on. The recipient of this message, this man named Zerubbabel, and uh, now we'll look at the content. What is it that God has to say to this guy? Something that perhaps has some application for you and I. He says this in verse uh, the end of verse twenty one. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. Now he's already said that. You remember him talking about shaking the nations when the people of God had laid again the foundation of the temple. Many of them had seen the original. While they were in exile 70 years, the old man remembered. It was a beautiful temple. It was an enormous temple. It was overlaid with gold. The sun hit it. It would light up. They looked at uh, the foundation they had poured. It was a lot smaller. It wasn't going to be the same glory that this other one was. And many of these old men wept. Is this the best we can do for God? But God had told him, Go ahead and build it. I'm going to shake the nations. And the treasures that I had brought to it before, I will bring to it again. He talked about his glory. Well, this message here, talking about shaking the nations, the heavens and the earth. He's about to. Now, God's about to is different than you and I. And we say, I'm about to, we normally are talking about probably within the next 20 minutes. You know, I don't know, maybe we could spread it to in a couple of days, I'm about to buy this, uh, whatever it might be. But with God, days like a thousand years, you know. But when God says it, I guarantee you, He's going to do it. And the Bible is filled with promised, proved, promised, proved over and over and over again. And here he is telling Zerubbabel, this is my plan. Listen closely. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of their brother. Just had God, as God had done in the book of Judges, turned the enemies of God on one another. We see it in our world today. People who should be standing with one another, standing against one another. God talking about uh, the future. Now there's a couple of things that, uh, that stand out as I read through this thing, the words uh, servant. Lot is, uh, perhaps Zerubbabel is a picture of Christ, a shadow, a type. In the book of Isaiah, Jesus is prophesied as the servant, the suffering servant. He is... um, a servant of God, and as you know, the you know uh, you, you you look at the Gospels and some of the the key verses describing Jesus describe him as he didn't come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And uh, and notice notice he continues here. I'm going to make you a signet ring, for I have and look at the word chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel, my servant, servant of the Davidic line, pointing to the Christ. From the very beginning of Genesis, the thread begins to be spoken about. It's unclear. But as history goes by, you, begin, you just see that line of Christ beginning a nation with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then through the, the, his son Judah, that promise continues all the way throughout the Old Testament until you get to the New. And it's just a matter of zooming it down into families. Judah, all of this, this, this large number of people, Judah was, a, was, was the largest of all of the tribes. So where would the line go from there? This little guy out there watching the sheep, his big tall brothers walking around like they own it all. But where's the promise go? No, you got one more. Where is he? Well, he's out with the sheep. We'll bring him in. It was David. And you trace through David's descendants all the way to the Christ. And how do we know that we ought to be looking for that when we're reading the Old Testament? Because you start out in the New Testament and it just goes through that whole family line, all of it pointing to Christ. And so this Davidic line, notice the word signet ring. This was the ring that had a carving that, when taken off, was used as a stamp, what we use as a seal, squeezing into paper, causing a, uh, the indentation that, would, that could not be taken away, a sign of authority. And here, this, this points not only to what God will do with Zerubbabel, but ultimately to Christ. And by the way, speaking of the Christ, how about the word chosen? You and I both know that the word uh, Christ means anointed one, the one who is chosen. So uh, Christ is not Jesus' middle name, you know? Uh, Lord isn't his first and Christ isn't his last. Name is Jesus. Who is he? He's the Son of God. And what is his title? He is the Christ, the chosen one of God. To accomplish salvation and to bring glory to God. And so he is a servant, the signet ring and the chosen. So, so Zerubbabel we see a picture of Christ about promises to come, even in the midst of a brokenness, ragtag nation that was once the head, that was once the place where people came from all over the world to hear the wisdom from a King Solomon. And to see all the wonders and glories in the gardens and the libraries. But sin had stolen all of it away. And so God would vanquish his enemies. And one day he will reward the faithful. So that shaken, that day is shaking is coming, my friends. That day is coming. There will be a day, a day of rebellion when God will show people who he is, when Jesus returns and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, and uh, that that Mount of Olives will split. Now, when that that prophecy was written, they didn't know what you and I know today, is apparently under the Mount of Olives there is a fault line. You know what a fault line is? It's where two tectonic plates are rubbing together. And uh, you often have the, the, the earthquakes because of these things. And just in the very direction that prophecy says the mountains will split is a tectonic plate rubbing together, just waiting to come apart. And so that day is coming, and Jesus will defeat his enemies, and he will rescue his people Israel, and he will enter into a thousand-year reign of Christ and uh, the promise awaits us. But the fact is, we've come here, we, we've got this little message, this promise that says, look forward. Now, you, you know, perhaps as a believer, one of the things you, you tried to do uh, uh, maybe uh, early on, you know, you're looking at this Bible, it's big, it's divided in two, well, it's not really half, it's, and maybe you started memorizing the books of the Bible, and and when you did, you know the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was good. And then you you know kind of got lost in the middle. I, honestly, if I was offered a million dollars here, I don't know if I could do it. I just, I mean I know them, but <laughs> but it's not something I rotely do in my head. I just know what's next door. So, uh, <laughs> but but when you come to the end, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You see, they've been restored into the land. And the question it leaves us is this now what? There have been an awful lot of promises in this Older Testament. What about the fulfillment? Here it is, pointing us to Jesus. Wherever it is you are, whatever the circumstances may be, it points us to Jesus. It's a good idea. Good stuff happened in your life, it ought to point you to Jesus to celebrate, to give thanks, to worship and bring glory to him. Going through a tough time, friends, it ought to point you to Jesus. Whatever your circumstances may be, whether, whether it's thin or whether it's fat, my friends, it ought to point us to Jesus. But we can't leave Haggai without noting some very practical lessons for God's people today. Some things we need to hold on to here. Let's, uh, let's uh, sum it up with a sermon in the sentence. It might look like this. The blessings of God are reserved for those who work to glorify him. If we've learned anything in this book, when people sat back to do their own thing for their own purposes and their own glory, they came up empty. But when they repented and turned to God and began to do the things that he called them to do, It is then when their barns were full, and they knew blessing, and they they found health instead of sickness, and life was good. And so we have this promise of blessing. Now, this was specifically offered to the nation of Israel, and yet the principle is the same. Now, blessings might look different for us than it was for Israel. God laid it out. You know, you plant those seeds, I will bring the rains. The rains don't come, the crops don't grow, and God made a promise to bring the rain. God didn't promise nothing about rain to you and I, and if uh, He did, it, it, the rain uh, meant bad. You know, God promised us in 2 uh, Timothy that all who live to uh, wish to live godly in Christ Jesus will get a new car every three years. No, He said you'll suffer persecution you want to live for Jesus, guess what? The blessings of God is, I'm going to make it tough. And when it gets hard, you're going to see my grace. And you're going to be able to endure. And people will look and say, how? And you'll be able to give them the reason for the hope that lies within you. And that hope is Jesus. You know, read Matthew 5 and learn about the blessings of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, it doesn't sound like a blessing to me. Maybe we don't understand what the word blessing means then. But the word blessing is God's favor or his goodness bestowed upon us. And that goodness sometimes simply means here's an opportunity to grow. It's going to be tough. But what an opportunity it will be. And so the blessings of God are certainly reserved for those who work to glorify him. So, some lessons. Here's some quick lessons for us. First off, the work of God has begun, sustained, and encouraged by the Word of God. Nothing was happening until God spoke. And they responded in obedience. The Word of God is central. Secondly, God's servants must work together to accomplish God's mission He spoke to the leaders. He spoke to the religious leaders, the political leaders. He spoke to all the people because the word of God is for everyone and everyone has a part in obeying it. And so God's servants, his people must work together. Chapters are written, and I think specifically in 1 Corinthians and Romans, about the gifts of the church and how all of the gifts... Working together for the same purpose brings maturity and blessing from God. And so, friends, everyone is necessary. Sitting in the back row is fine, but sitting in the back row and just being a a spectator is not Christianity. God has gifted you for something, and it's necessary for the people around you that you use it. Exercise that gift. And notice also that God's servants must work together to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. But here, putting God first is the guarantee of God's best. Putting God first is the guarantee of God's best. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all those things you were worried about, God will take care of them. Put the first things first, and the second things, not at all. Let God take care of those things. These are the lessons of the, the prophet Haggai. You need the word of God. You need one another, and you need to get at it. It's a good lesson. Some good application. Whatever you're setting, God has not forgotten you. It may feel like a, Owen oh, by the way, but maybe it is that God reserved the best for last. Hey, we're talking about today and the struggle and the, the battlefield and, and the difficulties, but when we get to the end of the book, it's victory all the way. It's true in the book of a guy, it's true in the, the scriptures. When you get to the book of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you say, that one's confusing. And yet, that's, it's all about victory. It's the how's it going to end? I mean, the struggle, it's hard, and it doesn't seem like we're getting any better with it. I mean, does it all just collapse on us and it wasn't worth doing? And the answer is, we win. All glory goes to Jesus Christ. He accomplishes perfectly God's plan. For the glory of God and the good of his people. It's glory all the way, my friends. So, Jesus did not die on the cross as a substitute for my sin and yours so that we could muddle our way through. He did it so that we would get at it for his glory, for the good of the people around us, and so that one day we'd see the victory. Friends, do not lose heart. God is a winning God, and you're on his team.